Ultimately, women are better investors. They're more responsible and make more money over time. I'm Tamina, and I'm extending a heartfelt invitation to you as we join forces in reclaiming economic power for women in a world that is often structured against us. We'll dive into the minds of accomplished female leaders, investors, and entrepreneurs to equip you with the confidence and knowledge to build wealth for yourself and other women. So buckle up, get ready to learn, and be inspired to take action. Welcome back, everyone. Today, I have the honor of speaking to the one and only Julie Castro Abrams, who is the founder and managing partner of How Women Invest, an early-stage venture firm focused on high-growth, tech-enabled, women-founded enterprises. The firm is a culmination of her lifetime of work propelling women founders to launch and find success with training, capital, and networks. Julie brings her extensive experience identifying and supporting early-stage entrepreneurs and 20 years as a CEO and board director. She's bringing her extensive networks, leadership, and entrepreneurship experience to disruption of the venture landscape. An active investor and advisor to startups, and as the leader of the nation's largest micro-enterprise and microfinance organization for 11 years, Julie has helped launch over 6,000 women into successful businesses. Today, she's advising the SBA, White House, and Congress on national legislative initiatives to address economic opportunities for women. As the CEO of How Women Lead, she is at the center of the movement to disrupt antiquated, unequal systems by propelling women into even greater leadership roles and increasing opportunities for all women. She has also received many, many accolades, including the Morgan Stanley Innovation Award, Cisco's Innovation and Technology Award, the League of Women Voters, Women Who Could Be President Award, and many more. So as you all can imagine, I'm absolutely thrilled to have the opportunity to have a conversation with this impressive guest today. Julie, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you. Well, you just made me feel fantastic. So thank you for that lovely introduction. <laughs> of course, my my pleasure. You know, credit where credit is due. I know there is probably lots of things on your resume that didn't even make it into the intro because you've just been such a trailblazer in this space. Kudos to you for all the work that you've done and everything you do to pay it forward for future generations of women. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, look, Julie, um, this podcast is all about helping women build wealth for themselves and other women. So this whole notion of paying it forward is really, really important as part of this conversation. And because increasing women's visibility is absolutely critical when it comes to wealth building, I always start out by asking my guests this question first. Who is a woman that you admire and why? Can be anyone, politician, small business owner, activist founder, doesn't matter. Well, the list is super long, of course, but um, I'm pick Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is a legislator in the United States. And the reason why is because she's so fierce. I'm 55 years old and I grew up in a time and, you know, our culture tells women, don't take up too much space. Don't be too loud. Don't be too aggressive. Don't be, you know, all the don't be's, you know, there's a long list. And as much as I've accomplished in my life, I got I got that stuff in my head and I can't get it out. And I watch young women like her, probably like you too, but 
just like stand in their power. I'm in this generation where it's like, it takes me like four hours to figure out how to respond when someone says something horrible. You know? <laughs> but I watch these young women just standing in their power, being absolutely unabashedly powerful and fierce and with their perspectives, and they don't let people get under their skin. And I think that's magnificent. I hope all women, especially all the young women coming up into this world, I, I hope you feel that in your bones. I don't, and I wish I did a little more. Well, beautifully put, and big shout out to AOC there. And it, it's becoming increasingly important for women to become more comfortable taking up space, especially in all of those male-dominated fields, right? Politics just being one of of many, many examples. And she's definitely someone who is living by example as it pertains to standing up for what you believe in and creating and holding space for really everyone and making diversity, equity, and inclusion the center of every single conversation. This is off to a great start. Speaking of holding space, on this podcast, we welcome and hold space for vulnerability. And I've personally made the experience that even though I'm only 28 years old, but the wiser we become based on all the different experiences and relationships that compound over the course of our lifetimes, the more we realize how our upbringings and unique overlapping social identities shape us. And over time, we simply become better at connecting the different dots of our identity, values, and just overarching purpose in life. And I know that a lot of the work that you do today is grounded in your own childhood memories. Do you mind sharing your story with us? Oh, sure. I think one of the parts of my story that I think, you know, it, it is important, I think it counteracts some of what I said about, you know, the culture, right, is I actually was the first generation of women who benefited from Title IX. I was an athlete. I was a swimmer and I was very good. And um, because that was encouraged and supported. In my early 20s, I'll just never forget, like every time I had a leadership journey, you know, at your age, where something challenging would happen, I'd have a dream at night that I was diving off the starting blocks, just like powerfully doing dolphin kick under the water. And to me, I feel like that there was this moment when I was growing up, Title IX had passed, Reproductive rights were passed. There were these women you would see, people called them bra burners, whatever it was, the women who came before my generation, they're the ones who did it. Like they changed so much for all of us. And I felt a sense of like what was possible for women that hadn't come in any generation before us. Um, and when you think about, you know, money, right? My mom was a stay-at-home mom, but she also had a small business on the side. And I'll never forget when I was like junior, senior in high school, and even in early years in college, a bunch of her friends, their husbands left them for the 25-year-old secretary. You're in a pinnacle moment, and you might not realize how transformational this moment is, but you know, when you're my age, you're going to look back and think, Jesus, I was part of that. But at that moment in time, you didn't get 50-50 when you had a divorce. So these women were destitute. This was right before those laws were passed that really gave some protection to women or whoever the caretaker was back then. It was always women. And I remember thinking, that will never be me. I will never be that vulnerable. 
and I kind of knew certain things about myself. It's like, I will never, I can't be a trophy wife. I am way, you know, I got too much, too many opinions, et cetera. And I'm super smart. And I threaten every man, you know, that I went to school with, I swear, you know, when I was 22 years old, I was in graduate school at the University of Chicago. And I met and I dated these guys that were, you know, at Northwestern and University of Chicago, the guys that are running the world today. And I just kept thinking like, Either they were threatened by me or they would try and belittle me. And it was just, it was not always super obvious, but sometimes it was, right? And I met this sweet, sweet man. He's an immigrant with a 10th grade education. Here I have some of the best education money can buy in the United States. And he couldn't compete with me, so it wasn't even on the table. And basically what I realized in choosing him as my life partner, and 33 years later, he is everything to me. He is absolutely a saint and the sweetest man. But at that moment in time, I was like, if I want to have a family and I want to have a career, you'd have to make choices that I didn't want to make. I didn't want to be vulnerable, but I wanted to have kids. And so I married somebody who who doesn't compete with me. He worked in a union shop as a machine operator and just supports me. And he says his whole job in life is to support me. And the other day, he retired a year and a half ago. Um, and I said to him, I was like, babe, I was like, what is it that's making you happy? And he looks at me and he goes, well, you make me happy. You're my focus. You're my project. And I thought, oh God, like how great is that? So out of the horrible experiences of my mom's contemporaries, I made a choice, which my, you know, my parents weren't happy about. It. Everyone was upset about it. And now everybody's like, you got the best husband on the planet. And he's just a beautiful life partner. Yeah, what a gift. Thank you <laughs> so much for opening up and sharing that beautiful story. I would tend to agree that you are probably one of the the lucky ones. And congratulations on making that smart decision many years ago. It sounds like as if you are in a very, very happy and, and fulfilled relationship. And I'll tell you, you know, if you look around at the other women, so I work with top executive women, right? It's people who've broken all the glass ceilings and who are really killing it. I can probably count on one hand how many of them have a partner who had a big career as well. Most of the women, either their husbands were threatened by them or their life partners and they got divorced, or they married the plumber or the artist or the alternative guy. I don't think you have to make those same choices today necessarily because there's paid leave for men and women and could be a little more balanced. But I'll tell you, it's still it's still tough if you're a really smart and strong driven woman to find a partner who can support that and who gets it and doesn't feel threatened by it. Our culture just doesn't allow for it still. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, that is true. There are so many studies. I remember Stephanie O'Connell. I don't know if you're familiar with with her work, I love what she posts on Instagram. She basically takes academic studies and and boils them down to the key hypotheses and findings of those studies. And she was posting a few weeks back about how relationships or marriages where at some point the woman in a heterosexual relationship, the woman starts out earning the husband. The rate of divorces goes up significantly. Oh, sure. And it's just it's so depressing. It's so, so depressing. And to your point, yes, things are changing. And then I would hope 
that for my generation and for Gen Z and like all the future generations of women, hopefully this will not be a topic anymore. But I still see it with my female co-workers who are a couple years older than me, right? Yeah. I see it with my mentors and and sponsors. It definitely isn't even close to a 50-50 just yeah. yet. A, a lot of them have either chosen to not be in a relationship at all and they decided against children. Yeah. Or they're at this inflection point where they're like, oh my goodness, I don't know what to do. Do I have to take a step back in order to save my relationship, save my marriage, be a good mom, quote unquote, right? I think we could go on and on and on about this topic alone because there is so much to dissect there. But obviously, we're here to talk about some of the incredible work that you do for women. And you know this best. You wear many different hats, Julie, all in service of women and the Latinx community. And I'd like to start exploring one of those hats first, namely your work with How Women Invest. Multiple listeners probably know by now that the venture capital ecosystem is broken. You highlight this on the How Women Invest website. 40% of U.S. companies are founded by women. And women-led startups generate 10% more in cumulative revenue over a five-year period. And yet only 1.9% of venture capital dollars went to female founders in 2022. Obviously, fixing an entire system is very complex and it takes time. But you and your team have actually identified a lever that could be a big part of the solution, namely tapping into the potential of high net worth women and recruiting them as angel investors and limited partners in VC funds. But in order to do that successfully, we need to first understand how these affluent women tick, right? And that's why your team commissioned a never-before-examined research to understand the difference between how men and women invest and to identify how to motivate more women to invest in startups. And I remember reading that report last fall, like totally geeking out about it and just thinking, wow, this is so insightful. Um can you please summarize the biggest takeaways from, from your research? Sure. Well, okay, so let me give you one example. In the stock market, men are more likely to buy individual stocks, buy and sell, buy and sell. Every time you do that, there's a fee. And you can't really do that anymore very effectively because most of the markets are driven by computer-generated super fast, faster than you could ever click a button with your own hand, right? So when something is on the rise, a computer-generated program is stepping in and buying up those stocks. And women are more likely to invest in mutual funds. Ultimately, women are better investors. They're more responsible and make more money over time. These are averages, right? But men are trading. We assign so many negative things to women, unfortunately, in our society. And so we say women are risk-averse. No, actually, we're just responsible and risk-aware. And I think being able to really pivot that conversation is super important because I think for a lot of women, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy concept, right? Somebody says that and you start to buy into that and believe that silliness, right? And you start to think, oh, I guess I should be risk averse. And that doesn't make sense. Well, 
So if you use that analogy then about women and men and how they invest, um, in venture versus in private investing. So angel investing is generally, I take my own money and I invest in an individual company. Okay. So let's say I have $25,000 to invest and I invest in one company or even two. Um, if I invest in a venture fund, I might have 20 companies that that investment is spread out with. And so you are automatically getting diversification. We believe that venture investing is a great solution for women who are interested in that kind of diversification. The other thing that's really interesting is we know that women are more likely to invest aligned with their values, right? So we have an opportunity here. If women are investing in their values, they're more likely to invest in venture but they've never been invited to invest in venture capital. So many women tell me no one's ever given them a pathway. And in most venture capital firms, there's reasons for this, but most of them, the minimum investment amount is, you know, $250,000 to a million dollars. That's a lot of money. Even if I have, let's say I, ha I had a big exit, I worked at Google, whatever, and I have $25 million in somewhere, right? I don't want to make a mistake and lose a million bucks. Like, you know, that feels like a lot, right? Whenever you're doing something new, because women are risk aware, they will research more. So one of the things that we did is like, okay, these women are too busy to research and to figure it out. A lot of these corporate women who are still, still working, let's make a super easy path for them to say yes. So we, in my network, we got 17,000 top executive women. So in terms of venture investing, right? One of the things we said to them is like, listen, we're going to all do this as a community. We're doing it about women. So it's aligned with your values. And the minimum investment amounts just $25,000. And it's spread over four years, which means it's $6,250 a year for four years to be part of something sexy and important, a power play and something that you get to do with other women and you can invest aligned with your values. And if I lose $6,000 a year for a lot of the women that are in our network, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, you know, nobody wants to lose it. But if you think about a zero-sum game here, right, um, the risk associated with that is modest. So one of the things we found is once people invest with us for the first time, within 12 months, 30% of them are investing in two and three other venture firms. So it's, it's not that they're not going to do it. They just needed to get across the line, get a little confidence. And I think that it's a lot of venture firms out there think that women won't invest. They also think there aren't women of color that have money. Well, let me tell you, 50% of all of our investors are women of color. So this is an environment that is great for, for all women, and it's a big power play. I love the reframing from risk-averse to risk aware. Mm. And I'm a culprit myself. Like I use the, oh, women are more risk averse all the time. When in reality, that reframing, it's just one word, averse to aware. Mm -hmm. And adding that responsible connotation to it. I think what potential that has from a psychological perspective for women that you want to to encourage to get started, I think it's huge. 
because risk averse has definitely a negative connotation, right? But risk aware and being responsible has a strongly positive connotation. If I'm a multimillionaire, like writing a seven figure check or even a high six figure check, that is still a big decision to make. And from a diversification perspective, it's probably not the most responsible decision, right? So I love that you created that space and that with your network of 17,000 female executives, you have the opportunity to spread that message. And I also love the fact that 50% of your members are women of color. I think that is a whole, you know, separate conversation that we could have in this context. But I think it speaks volume to the untapped potential that nobody really talks about, right? Kind of the first generation of women like me. Like if you look at women 20 and 30 years older than I am, there were certainly ceiling breakers, but there weren't that many. And they had to act like men because there were so few of them. And even sometimes it's not such great leadership that we saw from some of those folks because they were, you know, they had to over, they had to over index. I'm being very masculine, right? But in my age group, we have a the first time ever, a huge volume of women with 30 years of work experience, with power and influence. I can get to anybody in this country at this you know, life stage of mine, right? And some wealth. And so just think if we activate all of us and we change the, what we think is the face of investing. Um, right now, if I say to you, what do you think a venture capitalist looks like? Almost everybody thinks about like a you know, 40-year-old white guy or 50 or 60, right? But that's not what it needs to be. That said, it is a private market and I can't get those guys to change their behavior fast enough for me. But if we all come together as women and we create our own venture funds and we do it ourselves, Morgan Stanley did a research study and said, we're leaving $4.4 trillion on the table that investors, limited partners could be making. So think about how much money we could all make and how many products that would be appropriately designed for women. And then the other thing is, everybody knows one of the big wins, the big like, wealth building events in the world is going public, taking a company public and only 20 women, might be 21 today, I don't know, but it's certainly not many more than that. Only 20 women in the history of the United States have ever founded a company that went public on the New York Stock Exchange. And I know the first one. And so it, just think about that. Think about what lost opportunity that is for all of us. And one of the things that we know is Still, the venture capital ecosystem is, even with now a lot of new women-run venture firms starting, they're small. They, the investments are relatively small. When you think about venture capital, there's sort of like stages of investing. When someone's just starting and it's an idea, it's called pre-seed. When somebody has started, has created the thing and is starting to test it out in the market and get some clients, that's called seed investing, right? It's different stages of investing. A series A is like the beginning of investments to really help someone grow a lot, right? So you already have clients and you're ready to scale. Everybody knows that at series B, these numbers depends on the industry. I'm throwing something out here. This is wrong in many cases, but it's often right, right? Is that a series A investment round with, let's say it's a $15 million, 10 to $15 million round. Um, and a series B round, which will be larger dollar amounts, maybe 20 million and up. Um, 
they call it a cliff because women are not getting those investments. You can probably track the number of Series B investments pretty closely to how many women are really getting to the point where they're even going public. So we have a problem on our hands because of the bias, the deep-seated bias in the system. And we can fix it together. That's that's my story, Morning Glory. <laughs> Couldn't agree more with what you just shared, Julie. We can just wait and sit around and expect the middle-aged white cis male to change their behavior and and finally become aware of their misogyny and microaggressions and their internalized bias. Something on that note that that really resonated with me when I did my research in preparation of this conversation, there is a powerful quote that you shared. We're not going to wait for other people to break down barriers for us. And I think that's like the overarching theme of of not only this conversation, but every single space that you touch, that, that sense of being proactive about it and coming together in community to promote sustainable change and empower one another. And I know that you're very active within the Latina community. All of us know that while all women are still suffering from economic inequities resulting in things like the gender pay, the gender wealth, and the gender funding gaps, Latinas are unfortunately disproportionately affected by, by all of those gender gaps. Latinas in the U.S. are paid 46% less than white men and 26% less than white women. We all agree that needs to change. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about your work with Latinas Inside. What are the objectives of this initiative and how, how do we get there? So it's, it's a very complex issue because Latinos, Latinas are not monolithic. They're from a you know dozen different countries, right? And of course, like it, all of us, you know, span education, but just very different cultural frameworks. And so, trying to understand how to connect and support and move that group of people together um, is sometimes challenging. Also, because so many Latinos are racially ambiguous, right? And a friend of mine, Trisha Montalvo Tim, she's a child of immigrants. They're both Latino, different countries. Um, and she could pass. She's white passing. And she hid her identity just because it was easier. Um, and and came to a certain point in her late 40s where she was like, wait, this isn't good. This is costing me. And I'm losing out on the opportunity to bring my full self and all the gifts that being an immigrant mean for me. So now that she's made it, She's really embracing this identity and sharing this story. You know, my daughter, I've married to a Mexican immigrant. And my daughter, she looks exactly like me and I'm white. That said, she's Latina, right? So she works in a very large tech company, one of the largest in the world. And some 60-year-old white guy comes up to her when she's a 26-year-old and said, Oh, you're the hot-headed Latina. Okay, my daughter has a violin performance degree from a conservatory. 
Like, she's the least hot-headed person on the planet. I'm hot-headed. She is not. So this guy, one, he supplanted that on her microaggressions, right? She calls me and she's like, mommy, this creepy guy said this dumb thing to me, right? Um, But but think about how he thinks about her. He's going to be ready for her to be hot-headed if that's what he really believes. So we have all these stupid cultural narratives that we plant on people. And I would just say, who do you think of as when you think about Latinas? Do you think about Sofia Vergara and the woman who cleans your house? Or are you thinking about the professional corporate woman? The fact that Latinas made up the majority of the University of California system freshmen last year. Maybe 20 years from now, this will be a non-issue. But today... We have got to address these negative cultural stereotypes, and we have got to try to connect this very diverse population of people in such a way that we can say, all right, let's lift each other up, sisters. Like, let's all try and move people forward together. So our Latinas Insight initiative is just that. Let's make a safe space for women to identify their identity as Latinas and connect them to board opportunities. So one of the things we said um, was that we wanted to get 200 women who are corporate directors to offer to mentor or or help sponsor, rather not mentor, sponsor Latinas to get on corporate boards. So that's an example of one of the things that we decided we were going to do. Um, and and it's it's been fascinating. We did a retreat last summer with really powerful Latina leaders. And we had a moment where we were talking about identity and language, right? And only one person was fluent in Spanish to the level that they felt confident and comfortable. Everybody else had shame. They were like, I came to the United States when I was six or eight. And that's sort of an interesting age, right? If I had an accent, it would hurt me. So I need to focus and only speak English. And so many of them lost a lot of their Spanish and feel like, hey, I don't get to claim being Latina or I'm embarrassed to be in a Latina environment because I don't speak Spanish. And so the complexity of, of you know, what is what does it mean to be Latina? Is it Spanish? Is it, you know, what is the cultural identity if Guatemalans are so different than Cubans or so different than people from Brazil, all considered Latinas? so very different. Argentinians are some of the most educated people in the world, right? And so just extraordinary diversity. But to me, if we have any group of people in our country that is being left behind, it hurts us all. Latinos are having more babies than anybody else. And if they're not educated and if they're not having opportunities for financial progress, it hurts all of us. Amen. Hmm. Um, something that really, really resonated with me was actually your story about your daughter. First of all, absolutely sucks that she had to had to experience that. The reason why it resonated with me is my partner also happens to be Mexican. Mexican immigrant came to the U.S. when he was five years old. So also at that critical stage where culturally he still feels very Mexican. Yeah, but obviously he is an American. Not obviously he's an American citizen at this point, but obviously like he feels torn 
lot of the time. His his younger sister, who was born in the United States, grew up in the U.S., is definitely culturally a lot more American than him. So even within immigrant families, the, the notion around having a shared identity, it's not always clear. There is lots of gray zones there. And having dated my partner for quite some time now, obviously, like I... I started thinking about, okay, when, whenever, if we are so lucky to, to have biological children one day, my children would be Latinas or, or Latinos, right? And me as a white woman, how would I set a positive example where I, I create a safe space for them to grow up without ignoring parts of their very important cultural identity. My partner is a little bit darker, so my kids might turn out a little bit darker as well. What does that mean for us when you go onto the street? Like so many different questions and thoughts. Super complicated. My daughter is super light-skinned, but her hair is really dark and really curly. And if she wears her big hoop earrings, she looks like she's Latina, right? My son on the other hand, is much darker skinned. It's close to my husband's complexion, but his hair it was blonde for most of his childhood and is pretty light brown. My daughter says, you know, mommy, I have all the privilege of being right passing. I don't like on college applications. She's like, I don't feel like I should say that I'm Latina. I don't want any, I don't want to get that privilege because I, you know, I'm white passing. And my son, on the other hand, who's super brown, when you go your freshman year in high school, nobody wants to stick out. Everyone wants to be the same. And so this is a kid who skipped a grade and went to Harvard, right? So he said, mommy, I don't want anyone to know I'm smart and I don't want anyone to know I'm Mexican. And it was like, babe, like what? And he was like, the Mexican kids all gather together in the corner and don't speak English and don't get involved in that high school. That was what he was seeing, right? Now, his best friend was half Guatemalan, half white guy. It's just so fascinating to see. You don't want to be identified with the kids who aren't doing well or getting into trouble, but you don't want to stick. You want to get the opportunity everybody else gets. But then if you hide your identity, we are all missing out on, we're all missing out on that. My children, the, what they have by being bilingual and bicultural is just magnificent. My kids spoke both languages more fluently than their cousins who were monolingual right. at the same age. Um, their brains are just on fire. And because they're bicultural, they're the most thoughtful, tolerant, open-hearted young people and don't want anyone to feel othered. I really feel like that bicultural identity is something that is such a gift for them and for, for everybody. And what if we created an environment where everybody got to show up as their full selves and we could celebrate the complexity and the beauty of the range of all of us? We put people in boxes because that's how we understand the world. When you have your babies, you know, do I put them in a box? How do, you know, they get to choose, I think. Um, so. And to your point just now, raising children bilingual, it's the greatest gift that you can you can share with them in our case to work out with my current partner we would try the trilingual thing because living in the u.s he's from mexico i'm from germany originally so we would try german spanish and, and english i don't know i think bilingual is already like super super challenging right no children are capable of learning there, three yeah. languages without question my daughter's married to a french canadian who speaks 
six languages fluently without a question. And he's a famous pianist. And what's so interesting, like that, my daughter is a violinist, but she works in tech and she's the one who makes the money. And it's so interesting to watch how they navigate that. You have to be sensitive to the fact that for better, for worse, culturally, men's identity is often caught up in being a provider. And sometimes maybe because women are so good at so many other things, if they don't have that, I do think that it can be challenging. Oh, absolutely. But but yeah, to your to your point, raising bilingual being such a gift, but at least in this country here, being bilingual English and Spanish is not necessarily always seen as as a gift to our society. It would be very different if your children were bilingual in English and French, for example. When people get threatened by things they don't understand and don't know. Okay. And you know, so you all have people say, Speak English around me. And it's like Yeah. You know what? We speak Spanglish in my house. Yeah. <laughs> we do both. Yeah. Yeah, but no, and it, it's so fun to have the fluidity of multiple languages because you get to pick the phrases that are the most fun in each language. Absolutely. But look, our conversation alone, it's just a testament to the fact that we need to create these spaces and and public discourses where we can reflect on these things, like especially for members of society that feel sometimes maybe there isn't really a space for them because they're they're not part of box A, but they're not part of box B, but they're a mishmash of the two of them. So we need to really create those spaces where people can feel comfortable reflecting on these things. And like for for other members of society, especially the ones who are more more privileged and more easily to be put in 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 one of the two boxes, right? to learn how to be allies and to increase their awareness and to challenge their own inherent biases. Julie, I feel like this has almost been a therapy session for me, oh, you sharing God. advice with me, given my unique circumstances. So thank you. Staying on the topic of, of like advice from someone who, who's been there, done that, right? Um, as you know, the vast majority of our listeners are on the younger side, mid-20s to, to early mid-30s. And most of us aren't top executives or high net worth individuals yet. But I know that a lot of us will get there. Um, do you have any tangible advice for us on how we can start setting ourselves up for success now so that we will be in a position to promote change through investing on our own terms in the not-so-distant future, hopefully? Well, first, and just listen to me, ladies, you're enough and you can do whatever you want. Nobody, nobody can tell you that you can't do all the things that you want to do. I, I'm a social worker and I started two venture funds. At my moment in time in this world, like I am now realizing anything is possible. All I have to do is put my mind to it. So please know when you're ready, you're going to be able to do anything. And when you make that choice about what you want to do and when you want to do it, keep standing on this beautiful mother earth touch the trees and just be imbued with a sense of you're right where you're supposed to be nobody else gets to tell you that you can't because you can't do great things if you start to believe those people and look at who's the messenger have they ever done the thing 
Like if someone has never done what you want to do, they definitely should not be someone giving you advice about whether or not you can do it. I think the other thing I would just say is, and I know this is probably not going to this doesn't sound so great. You know, it's not exactly what we all want to hear. But we all make a choice every single day about how we're spending our money. And I made a lot of choices in my life and spent money in ways that I felt were gratifying at the moment. But I lived for many years with like credit card debt, you know, and car notes and stuff. And I don't have any of that now um, at this stage in my life. And I'll tell you that just the freedom of not having any debt is amazing. Be really thoughtful about whether or not the choices of what you're spending your money on are stopping you from having options or causing you sort of that psychic cloud. If you can spend some time being frugal and clearing the decks and starting to save some money, you feel so much more powerful in the decisions you make about everything else in your life. Nobody cares if you're carrying around an expensive bag or fancy shoes. If you want to go, if that's important to you, go do it. But I think all of us are concerned about the environment. And the more stuff we buy, the more we're thrown away. And if you can connect your own financial health with your care for the environment, for example, I think that it could be really great for you. I spent too many years stressing about money just because I got myself, you know, like we all do. I had my kids young. I had my first baby at 25, right? And I was a primary breadwinner and I was running nonprofits. I didn't have a lot of money, but I could have made some other choices and not had so much stress and it would have been better for my whole family. Thank you for sharing that advice. I think it's super helpful. Something that I always encourage our community to reflect on is similar to what you just said. Reflect on what are the most important expense categories in your life that actually add true value and joy to your life. And look, that looks very different for 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 everyone, right? If you, for example, work in fashion and fashion is your life, whom I to tell you not to spend your money on expensive clothing, right? But you probably will have to cut back in other areas of your life. For me, and I think that's very much my generational thing, I love spending my money on food and eating out, like trading memories over a good meal with my loved ones. That brings me joy. Traveling, right? But at the same time, I don't own a car. Granted, I live in New York City, so I don't need it, but I haven't owned a car in in quite some time. I've actually only ever owned one car for one year. And that's it. I thrift a lot. I rent clothes instead of buying them for similar reasons that you just outlined yourself. I don't want to accumulate more stuff. I want to remain more mobile. Who knows where in the world I'm going to be moving to next, right? I think that's something that that is very important for younger generations to be mindful of and really trying to figure out how can you spend and invest your money in a way that is aligned with your values, right? And that's also the whole premise of this show as a whole, right? Spend your money, invest your money in a way that it can benefit other women by being an angel investor, by choosing to get your Christmas gifts from small business owners who happen to be female. Mm -hmm. Like there are so many small choices that you can make on a daily basis, but they can have this huge, huge positive ripple effect down the line. And if, and if you center on how you want to live your life and your values and you're thoughtful about it and it's, you don't accidentally, you know, do stuff that you don't feel so great about, like 
buying from local businesses, for example, you feel great. You just feel more centered in life because you're not flapping in the winds. You know your center, you know your values. And they shift over time, but um, but whatever your choices have been up until today, you're enough. You're going to be fine. Life's long. You know, just love yourself. And the more you love yourself, the more the rest of us are going to benefit. So I can't wait to see all of you leading in the future. I could just like sit here, Julie, and listen to you for another three hours and just be very, very content, honestly. Thank you so, so much. I have one final question for you today because I don't only always like to start out with the same question for all of my guests, but I also like to close with the same question. If I gave you a million dollars today to invest in either a company or a cause that would benefit women somehow, where would you invest that money? I think the first thing that came to my mind was reproductive justice. Mm -hmm. I am heartbroken that we're at this moment in time and um, it's unacceptable that women are carrying the burden and responsibility alone. It's not okay. So I think that's it. I want you guys to have freedom. I want you to be able to do and craft the life you want to live and have babies when it's time. Having children is the best thing I've ever done. But I did it on my terms, on my time, because I had a choice. Couldn't agree more there, Julie. Um, this has been such a wonderful and thoughtful conversation. Thank you for showing up as your most authentic <laughs> self. I, I know this is going to add so much value to our listeners. So sure. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Keep up the great work that you do for, for women everywhere. It's, it's much needed and greatly appreciated, especially by us younger folks, because you are someone who, who paves the way for us and allows someone like me to make progress. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey there, not so fast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you've listened in from today. Reviews are a podcaster's most important currency. It helps me create visibility for the incredible women who join me on this show. And if you've made it this far, I'd like to believe that supporting women is one of your favorite pastimes. If you already left a review, first of all, thank you, but why not share this episode with a friend or post it to your Instagram story? Thank you for helping me on my mission to make women rich by making women rich.